Thank you, Dr. Dockery, for that warm and kind introduction. And I want to thank Dr. Greenway for the invitation, understanding the grave stewardship that is involved in bringing the Word of God before his people. I am astonished, and I know I shouldn't be, but I am astonished over and over again how God in his gracious providence brings things, brings his purposes to pass. Unbeknownst to me, I, I asked Dr. Kreider what was the scripture that guided our worship this morning. He said, Psalm 96, and I'm preparing this message on Galatians 3. I had not thought about Psalm 96 and its relationship to this passage, but lo and behold, it has an extraordinarily relevant um, direct relationship to this passage. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. This morning we're going to look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 9 to 14. And most of the translations break this paragraph at verse 10, between 9 and 10, but what comes before verse 10 is directly related to verses 10 through 14. So we're going to look at verses 9 through 14, and we're going to start reading at verse 7. So Galatians 3, beginning at... Verse 7, let us read. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for giving it to us, 
Father, we pray that you would open your word to us this morning, that we might understand it. And we pray, Father, that you would open us to your word, that we might be conformed to it in all things. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. What has the curse of the law to do with us? Are Christians who are saved by grace through faith under obligation to obey the law? Are Christians the sons of Abraham? Are we heirs of the blessings of God's covenant with Abraham? Is there anything that you can do to aid your acceptance before God? These are all questions that are raised by our text this morning. So let's examine the text and see what the Holy Spirit, speaking through Paul, would answer. To, to understand Galatians, any text, you have to know a little bit about the context. He explained some of it there in, in chapters 1 and 2, a little bit more later. And we see aspects of the issue that the church at Galatia is dealing with in other parts of Scripture. But the issue that Paul is dealing with, and as you know, in Galatians, he starts off with a very, in a very confrontational way with the Galatians. Peter and Paul both taught that salvation came through faith alone in Christ and that it was entirely of grace and not of works. They taught that Christ was the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes as Paul puts it in Romans 10, verse 4. But some Jewish believers taught that the law of Moses was still in full force and effect. They held that God required all of his children to obey it. Salvation came through Christ, through faith in Christ, they said, and salvation was, by grace alone, they no doubt also said, but... They argued that God required all faithful Christians, no matter whether they were born Jews or born Gentiles, to obey the law of Moses. Christians must obey God's commands regarding circumcision, regarding clean and unclean foods, regarding the observance of the festivals, etc. We call those Christians who held this view concerning the law of Moses Judaizers. They were requiring Christians, they were teaching that Christians must come under the law of Moses. They even led Peter and Barnabas and some other Jewish Christians into hypocrisy in the church at Antioch. Peter, above all, should not have been led astray by this. God had revealed to him the dissolution of the kosher dietary laws in the law of Moses in his triple vision in Joppa. But now these Judaizers have gone to the Christians in Galatia. You have to wonder, are they following Paul around, trying to correct his errors, trying to, to fix what Paul has, has broken? 
They've now gone to the Christians in Galatia and explained that Paul didn't teach them everything. You know, Paul's a good guy, they said, but, you know, he's not fully informed. He, he even had to go up to Jerusalem to get, to get the whole deal, and it appears that he didn't quite get everything yet. And so we're here, we've come from Jerusalem, and we're, we're going to tell you the rest of the story. We're going to explain the way of Christ more fully to you. And what they said, bottom line, is that in order to be faithful Christians, we must obey the law of Moses. We must be circumcised. They seem to have said that to be a son of Abraham, you had to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. Now, this controversy was not just in the churches of Galatia. This controversy afflicted churches throughout the apostolic era and perhaps beyond. This controversy ultimately resulted in a meeting of leaders, Christian leaders, especially in Jerusalem. In Acts 15, what we call the Jerusalem Council. We read in Acts 15, verse 1, some men came down from Judea to Antioch. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Christians are under the most direct and grave obligation, they said, to obey the law of Moses. Being saved by faith did not cancel the law of Moses. Grace did not cancel the obligation to be circumcised, they said. And so this is, this is the, the false teaching in Galatia that Paul is confronting in this book. And in the passage that we're looking at, let's just start at verse 9. Paul concludes that, that small paragraph there. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What are the blessings of Abraham? Why is this so important? Why is this central to the art? Why are you talking about Abraham and, and his blessings? Well, God made promises to Abraham that entail to all peoples everywhere, either through the law of Moses or through faith in Christ. In Genesis chapter 12, in Genesis 15, in Genesis 17, in Genesis 22, we have recorded God speaking to Abraham and issuing promises to him and making a solemn, everlasting covenant with Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. I will make of you many nations. Count the stars if you can count them, and so shall your offspring be. Verse, uh, God promised in that, in, in, in Genesis 17 in particular, when, when God speaks at some length there, some detail about the covenant that he's making with Abraham, he promises to be a God to Abraham and to his offspring. He promises to be God to Abraham and to his offspring, to be God, to provide, to protect, to prosper, to bless. To be a son of Abraham then is to be a son of God. This covenant, this, these promises were to Abraham and to his offspring. Then to be the offspring of Abraham is to inherit this great blessing, this great blessedness, being a son of God, having God as God. 
and all the blessings that he intends for his people. So to be a son of Abraham is to be a son of God. Uh, chapter, uh, chapter three here, verse 26, reiterates this. We didn't read this, but later on in the chapter, Paul says, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And then in 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, sons of Abraham. If you are in if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So who is the offspring of Abraham? How do you get to be an offspring, a son of Abraham? Well, as Paul teaches here in the next, in the next paragraph from what we read in verse 16 of chapter 3, he teaches that first and foremost, Jesus himself, the Christ, the Messiah, is the intended offspring of Abraham. When God made this promise of blessing to Abraham and to his offspring, first and foremost, what he had in mind was Christ. Verse 16 of chapter 3, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Anyone else who becomes the offspring of Abraham does so by being united with Christ through faith in him. Physical descent does not make you Abraham's offspring. Faith in Christ does. If you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs, according to the promise. The blessings of Abraham come to the sons of Abraham by union with Christ by faith in him. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. What was this curse? And 3.12 is called the curse of the law. 3.10, all who rely on the works of the law are under curse. Verse 12 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So this curse is the curse of the law. And he cites here in verse 10, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Powerful emphasis there. You got to observe everything and do them. Double down on it. You got to do everything. That's from Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy 27 introduces a section where God pledges judgment for Israel if they turn from him. They disobey the covenant. And here in this verse, God makes it clear through Moses that they're obligated to obey, obey everything in the law, every single thing, to do all that God has commanded Chapter 28 of Deuteronomy describes this curse, elaborates this curse in horrific detail. It is horrific. If you read this with any human understanding, with any compassion, 
with any imagination of human experience, it is horrific. In verses 15 to 29 of Deuteronomy 28, God says that every aspect of their lives will be cursed. In verse 20, every undertaking will be cursed and will be met with confusion and frustration. They will not succeed in anything they undertake to do. Verses 21 to 27, God there details what in Ezekiel he refers to as his four dreadful judgments, pestilence, drought, defeat at the hands of enemies, and for being eaten by wild beasts. Verse 28, God will send upon them madness, blindness, and confusion. And then verses 29 to 68, God describes all of the horrors of entering into captivity, of having an enemy come and prevail over you and rule over you as conquerors, as enslavers, as oppressors with violence and abuse, enslavement and exile. But God pronounces the curse of the law in other places as well. It's not just Deuteronomy 27 and 28. You see this over and over again through the scriptures, sometimes in direct reference to Deuteronomy 27 and 28, as in Nehemiah. But in other places, God announces his curses and elaborates them. For example, one that I think is very prominent, one that is very prominent because of how it, how it is um, explained in the New Testament is Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. There, God announced his curse on Israel in an astonishing way. God commanded Isaiah to give Israel this message. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. He commands Isaiah to make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Jesus revealed other aspects of the curse of the law. It's a place of wrath and judgment forever. A place where the worm does not die, a place where the, the fire is never extinguished. The law of Moses brought wrath and condemnation on sin. Paul is saying here, all who rely on the law are under curse. The law brought judgment of sin, condemnation of sin, not redemption from sin. It revealed sin, but it had no power to save from sin. When Christ came, he saved by the power of God in the gospel by faith in Christ, not by observing the law. Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Salvation comes through faith, but the law is not of faith. It's not about to faith. It does not belong to faith. The law of Moses is of works, about works, belongs to works. Now, Paul's point here is not merely about reliance upon the law of Moses as if you had to believe that doing the works of the law would save you in order to, to come under the curse. That is included here 
And that's why so many of our English translations do translate this rely upon the law. That is included here. But that doesn't capture everything that Paul is trying to say. In Greek, literally, it says all who are of the law are under a curse. And here as the ESV talks about in verse 11 and 12, that the law is not of faith, verse 12. So this language, the, the Greek preposition ek, in this case, used this way, often refers to belonging or suggests, has a connotation of belonging to, not just of relying upon. Paul's point is not merely about relying on the law of Moses, but about belonging to it, about being under its guardianship, about being identified with, about having your identity defined by it, being in captivity even under it, as he explains later in chapter 3. God determined, however, to justify sinners not by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. And Paul here appeals to these two verses, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith, and Leviticus 18.15, the one who does them shall live by them. And a lot of New Testament interpreters, it seems to me, do a grave disservice to the Holy Spirit when they suggest that Paul is taking liberties with these verses. I do not believe that Paul takes liberties with the word of God. I don't believe that he invents new meanings, that he finds meanings that the Holy Spirit did not intend. Paul himself was inspired by the Spirit. Paul's not ripping these verses out of context. But I don't think Paul here is talking about eternal life. The righteous shall live by faith. I don't think he's talking in, in principally and primarily about eternal life, but about the characteristics of life. The, the, the one who does them, who does the law, shall live by them. I don't think he's saying that people can get saved by the law. I think he's talking about those who are under the law live defined by the law. Their life is defined by the law. It's characterized by the law. They belong to it. Those who are of faith live in accordance with faith is what Habakkuk means, I believe. Those who are of the law live in accordance with the law. Now, this is clearly reflected, I think, in uh, this use of live, Paul uses in several other places in Galatians. And so in chapter 2, verse 14, when he confronts Peter, Peter had been observed, uh, had been, had been uh, eating with the Gentiles, not observing the kosher laws. And then when some Judaizers came, then Peter pulled back and with them observed the kosher dietary laws. And so Peter was acting hypocritically. And Paul confronted him, and in verse 14 of chapter 2, he says to Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What characterizes the life? Faith by the Spirit or observance of the law of Moses? The law of Moses came after the Abrahamic covenant. It does not annul the Abrahamic covenant. It rather prepares the way for the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. It teaches, it prophesies, it foreshadows the things to come. It teaches that faith saves, that a humble heart of faith and love toward God are what please God, not outward conformity. The outward conformity is necessary, but entirely insufficient. It teaches that forgiveness comes by grace and not by works. 
The worship, the temple, the feast, the sacrifices were types of Christ who fulfilled them. And so the law of Moses was a temporary covenant, Paul says. It held the world in a kind of guardianship or captivity until Christ came. In verse 23, Paul says, now before faith came, before the declaration of the gospel of faith in Christ, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. The law of Moses reveals the glory of God, teaches the way of redemption through faith in Christ, reveals God's holy character and universal moral obligations, but it does so in a different relationship once Christ comes. The law makes the handoff to faith. The law did its job. The law, the guardian, keeping under captivity, displaying sin, now makes a handoff to faith. But that doesn't mean that the law still has no value. The law still reveals. The law still reveals sin. The law still teaches Christ. The law still drives us to faith, to depend upon the grace and mercy that God extends through faith in Christ. The law of Moses was never intended to justify anyone. It did not save, but it taught the way of salvation through faith in the coming Messiah. And so justification comes by faith, not by the law. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the law. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Quoting Deuteronomy. Paul seems to teach here that all people, not just Jews, are under the curse of the law. This is something that I don't think I'd ever much reflected on until I began working on this passage. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The us there, I, I think it's hard to make the us there apply to the Jews only. Paul is not there identifying himself merely as a Jew. He's including all the Gentiles. He's including all the believers in Galatia in this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The law of Moses was not about Israel merely. Psalm 96, Israel had a duty to declare God's glory to the nations. The nations had a duty to ascribe glory to the Lord, to come to him. The law was not just about Israel, it was about the nations. If Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, that means that apart from faith in Christ, we are all under the curse of the law. In chapter three, in, in, in the same chapter, in verse 22, Paul says, Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be, give, might be given to all those who believe. Paul says the same, a very thing, something very similar in Romans 3, verse 10. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. The entire world is accountable to the law of God. The entire world is under the curse of the law. 
Christ redeemed believers from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Can you conceive this? Can you understand this? He became a curse for us. Who can say this without a lump in your throat, without a tear in your eye? How can this be? Read all 68 verses of Deuteronomy 28. This is what you deserve and more besides for all eternity without end, without even hope of an end. Christ became this for you. Do you have faith in Christ? It's because he became a curse for you, the very son of God, God incarnate. He, the innocent and holy and blessed one, became a curse to redeem you. It was for you. It was for you. Are you in Christ? Fall to your knees and weep out tears of joy and thanksgiving. Are you out of Christ? Look upon the blessed Christ whose love for sinners is so astonishing, so deep, so pure, so powerful and certain that he endured that curse to redeem you. You are utterly deserving of the curse of the law, but see how he loves with an everlasting love all who cast themselves upon him in faith for mercy. Just a few words of application further. If you are a believer in Christ, you are a son of Abraham. Chapter three, verse seven, we read it at the start. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You're an heir of the Abrahamic covenant. God has adopted you in Christ into his everlasting covenant. Fear not. What have you to fear? God's covenant in Christ is from everlasting and to everlasting. And you who are trusting in Christ have been adopted into it and are heirs of its eternal blessedness. Another point of application I think is worth pointing out here. We are heirs of the promises, of the Abrahamic promises by faith and not by physical descent from Abraham. By faith, not by physical descent from Abraham or from any other parent. This rules out the baptism of infants, it seems to me, quite straightforwardly. Many believers argue that baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And that since circumcision was required for the physical descendants of Abraham, the man of faith, baptism is also required of the physical descendants of believers in Christ. This argument confuses and mixes faith and physical descent, something Paul is quite clear about both here and in Romans. The promise comes not by descent, but by faith. If baptism replaced circumcision, why didn't Paul say so? He could have shut down the main point of the Judaizing teachers in Galatia. Since they were demanding Christians get circumcised, he could have shut that down easily by saying, you see, baptism has replaced circumcision. No need to even think about it. Why doesn't she say that? Well, I think the answer is obvious. Baptism does not replace circumcision. Infant baptism is not what is commanded in Scripture. Another point of application, let us submit to the Old Testament. 
It is the very word of God. Submitting to the Old Testament means rejecting circumcision now that Christ has come. Submitting to the Old Testament means rejecting circumcision now that Christ has come. The Old Testament has not less value because Christ has fulfilled its prophecies, types, and shadows. If possible, it has more value. Without the Old Testament, there's no New Testament. Quickly, just two more points of application. The curse of the law blinds sinners. The curse of the law blinds sinners. In Psalm 115, we read that the the idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, they do not speak. They have eyes, they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in the throat. Those who make them become like them with eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear. And Psalm 115 says, so do all who trust in them. Everyone who trusts in idols becomes like them, blind and deaf. All sin is idolatry. All disobedience begins as distrust of God, a refusal to seek him and to hear his spoken word. It is fitting that God punishes sin with blindness and deafness. And so grace is needed to open blind eyes and deaf ears Christ announced that when he came, why do you think he said this? I have come to open blind eyes to give hearing to the deaf. He has come to lift the curse by becoming a curse for us. Do you see, do you hear? It is grace alone that accomplished it. Now, one last thing. Since salvation is through faith in Christ who redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, is there anything that you can do to secure acceptance with God? There's nothing. All has been done for you. No work, no sacrifice, no humiliation, no obedience to God's commands on your part can add an iota to what makes you acceptable to God. You are loved and accepted because you're in Christ, not because you have done anything worthy of approval. If you believe you are in Christ, if you believe you are in Christ and the Father loves and accepts Christ the Son, what can you add to the Father's acceptance and love of Christ? And you are loved and accepted because you're in Christ. So stop seeking assurance or consolation from works of obedience or devotion or service or sacrifice. They can add nothing to Christ, and so they can add nothing to your acceptance in him. Rest in the salvation accomplished entirely by Christ, which is entirely of grace and entirely yours by faith alone. Rest in that. What has the curse of the law to do with us? Everything. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed your great and everlasting covenant with all who are in Christ throughout the scriptures. Father, we thank you that you have given us eyes to see everyone who has trusted in Christ. You have given us ears to hear. You have redeemed us by the shed blood of Christ. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see by faith and to receive and rely upon everything you revealed in your word that we may recognize how great is the love with which you loved us in Christ that our own hearts might overflow with love to you in Christ 
by your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name.